Chase and I were talking about that the other day, that you find in scriptures uh, so many expressions of joy that should come from us when we praise God. And sometimes that is clap, clapping. And I would remind, you know, those who lead worship sometimes, you know, we're not clapping for you. Uh, we're clapping for the Lord. We're praising God. It's a way for us to extend and share our heart, not just in song, but even with our physical body. And one of the things that uh, Chase and I were reading a book together called Worship Matters. And in that book, we find that the word worship itself in the Old Testament uh, actually refers to a physical act of bending down, of prostrating oneself, of laying on the floor, that, uh, that worship is always meant to be expressed uh, with our physical self. And so whether we're raising our hands or, or clapping together or applauding the Lord, it is a good thing and it is a part of our worship as a congregation. We're just so blessed to have a a great worship team, and we're just so thankful for what they do. So it wouldn't be wrong to clap for them, but we remind ourselves that it's the Lord we worship, and, and we thank Him for the good gifts, and one of those good gifts is a, a loving and dedicated worship team. Uh, today we're reading from the Scriptures out of First Kings. Out of First Kings chapter 18, starting in verse 13. Nope, verse Chapter, I've got two different ones. I did this two weeks in a row. Okay. First Kings chapter 19, picking up in the middle of verse 9. And we may check on the, on the, Nathan, on the monitors. Is the computer muted? That might, because um, I'm hearing a ringing. And it may not be bothering y'all, but. Um, chapter 19, First Kings. Okay. Ah, there we go. That's a little bit better. Thank you. Well, you fixed it. It was, maybe it was, it was the Holy Spirit. We'll give the Lord credit. <laughs> 1 Kings chapter 19. I'm going to pick up in the middle of verse 9. This is speaking of Elijah. So there he, Elijah, went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. As you are, just another reminder that we are on a summer schedule for Kingdom Kids, which is our ministry for those who are two, uh, for those who are four years old through second grade. So that will resume next week, and we'll be meeting on and off through the month of August. 
And so once we hit September, we hope to come back to an every week schedule for our kingdom kids, except of course on the Sundays in which we celebrate the Lord's Supper, because we want the kiddos in here to be a part of that celebration as they uh, are either baptized and ready to partake in the Lord's Supper, or it's a chance for them to learn more about what the Lord's Supper is all about. But uh, that's kind of what we got going on with kingdom kids. I want to pause and just ask if you would just pray with me before we get into God's word today. Let's pray together. Father God, we come to this place, lots going on in our lives. Maybe for some we come to this place with not much at all, but a sense of loneliness has settled in. And we may come worried about our health, worried about our kids, worried about our future. We may come and all things are well with our soul. God, I'm just so thankful that you are a God that knows what each and every one of us is going through. And you intend to speak and minister to us no matter what's happening in our life. You know us, you care for us. And we ask that you would speak to us through your word today. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. A while back, my family and I, we took a trip to the beach. This is probably last summer, actually. And it was one of those kind of last minute things, you know, and... I, most of you have probably been to the beach, and if you have four kiddos like we do, you're probably aware that an impromptu trip to the beach requires a lot of coordination. You've got to get a lot of stuff ready, especially when you're going to have to drive an hour and a half to get there. And so we're rushing around, we're getting everything ready, we're trying to pack the car with all of our stuff to get in there, and it's mid-afternoon at this point. And we say, well, we'll just get dinner on the way. And we tried to get dinner on the way, but that didn't work out the way we had planned. It took longer than we thought. And we showed up to the beach and we're frustrated. And isn't that how it goes sometimes? Too many times. We've got something fun planned and we show up and we're just frustrated. Nothing is working the way we thought it was going to work. And by the end of it, though, as we're playing on the beach and it's getting later in the evening, and then the sun begins to set. And you see this beautiful setting of the sun while you're on the beach. And I just think all of that chaos, all the things that went wrong that made us get here late. And we got got here in a bad mood. And now we're sitting here in the glory of God, enjoying this time with our family. And it reminded me, I was thinking about this this weekend, it reminded me of a little picture that floats around on the internet sometimes. It looks like this. Johnny will put it up for us. On the top of it, you see, here's our expectations for how things are going to go. You got the little fellow on the bike. There's the finish line. It's a nice, nice, maybe a little uphill, but nothing big. And then below it says, "Uh uh-uh, this is God's plan for your life. And if you look at the bottom picture, you see, you know, like a big pitfall with some rocks in there. You see a, 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 probably a very dangerous bridge you have to cross. And then there's some water you got to flow. Like you see how it goes. There's some storms. There's a big hill to climb at the end. Like this is, this is what life is really like. We have our expectations of how things are going are to go. But then you have reality, right? Reality sets in and you realize all those plans that you thought, all those expect, expectations that you had just go out the window. Now, I don't know what Elijah was expecting But I'm pretty sure what he went through, based on how he responded, looked nothing like what he expected. Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament. If you've been tracking with us through this sermon series, you know that the kingdom of Israel has now been fractured. 
both through Solomon's disobedience when he married a lot of women who were not uh, from Israel worshiping God, Yahweh, but brought in all these other idols to worship. And he, he allowed that to happen in the nation of Israel. And then on top of his disobedience, his son comes to power after Solomon dies. And his son is harsher with the people than Solomon. Solomon did some incredible things. He built uh, Solomon's temple was one of the greatest, most beautiful places in the entire world. How did he do that? He was hard on his people to get that done. At the end of his reign, the nation of Israel was wealthier than any other nation in the world. How did he do that? He was hard on his people. And when his son comes to reign, the people ask, could you, could you, you know, tone it down a little bit? Could you just relax? You know, your dad was really tough on us and we didn't really appreciate that. If you could just, you know, back off a little bit, that'd be great. And Solomon's son does not get good advice. His name was Rehoboam. He got bad advice. He took the bad advice and said, nope, I'm going to be more difficult to deal with than my father. And that was the fracturing point between the north, what becomes known as the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom that becomes known as Judah. Now, Elijah shows up on the scene to the northern kingdom that is known as Israel, which encompasses ten tribes of Israel, all except for Judah and Benjamin. So Elijah is the prophet God sends to speak to the nation of Israel because judgment is coming on Israel. And in fact, when it's all said and done, Israel is going to be conquered by a foreign nation and the best and brightest is going to be taken out of Israel. That's where we get the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. All those are coming out of the exile. But before that happens, you have these two kingdoms. And out of all the kings that Israel ever had, not one of them was good. But there was one that was worse than the others. And his name was Ahab. And Elijah is a prophet of God in this moment of time sent to speak to Ahab. And the first message he gives is not a popular one. And if you know anything about the Bible and prophets, you know most prophets don't have a particularly upbeat message from God. Oftentimes they have a hard word to speak to God's people. God's people have gone astray. They are worshiping foreign gods. Particularly the, the, the God known as Baal. Now Baal was a god from other lands surrounding Israel. Baal was known as the thunder god or the lightning god. He was in charge of the rain. That's how they saw it. And so they needed rain, so they worshipped the God who would bring rain so that they could get rain, so they could have crops and they could have a fruitful life, a comfortable life. So they didn't reject Yahweh, the God of Israel. They just added to Yahweh, Baal, the God of thunder and lightning and rain. So this comes through Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who is... Also a, a foreign wife that he marries. And she's bringing in her gods from her background. Again, Baal being one of them. And so what God says is he says, okay, do you think Baal's in charge of rain? Elijah, go tell them that they are going to go without rain until you say so. So that's how, as far as I can tell from scripture, that's how the relationship between Elijah and Ahab gets kicked off. Elijah's telling the king of Israel, no rain. Now, what do you imagine no rain feels like? Y'all have no idea what that's like, do you? Of course we do. We're dependent on rain as they were. They were probably depending on rain, to be honest with you, more so than we are. 
But without rain, there is trouble. And Israel did not have enough opportunity to irrigate from large rivers surrounding it. You ever seen the Jordan River? It is not a big, impressive river. It's not like the Nile or something like that. So they didn't have opportunity to irrigate their land like other countries. So they were, they were desperate for rain. And they go three years with no rain. And all Ahab knows is that this punk Elijah is the reason we don't get rain. It's his fault, and I don't like him, to say the least. And so when Elijah eventually turns up, what does Ahab, king of Israel, who's invited all these gods in, who's brought about this judgment of no rain, what does he say? Ahab actually calls Elijah the troublemaker. Here comes this troublemaker from Israel. The troublemaker of Israel. For three years, no rain. And then Elijah shows back up to speak again to Ahab. So this happens after three years. First Kings chapter 17, Elijah shows back up on the scene. And this sets up one of the most dramatic scenes, I think, in the Old Testament. Elijah returns to Ahab and he sets up a test. Elijah says, you get all these prophets of Baal. And there was another God that was understood to be married uh, to one of these gods and her name was Ashtorah. And so they had a fertility goddess as well. He said, you've got all these prophets of these two gods that are supposed to be in charge of your reign that hasn't come in three years. Gather them all up. We're going to meet up on Mount Carmel. We're going to get up there and we're going to have a little conversation. So in the middle of chapter 18 of 1 Kings, we read in verse 16, That Obadiah meets with Elijah, comes across him. And when Elijah saw him, he said to him, or when Elijah saw him, he said to Ahab, you are the troublemaker of Israel. So he challenges him to bring all these prophets up to the mount. And he says to the people in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Scriptures say that the people said nothing. And then in verse 22, Elijah says to them, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. What we know in the story is that Jezebel had gone through and found the Lord's prophets and killed most of them. But Baal, he says, has 450 prophets Left. So he calls for this contest. He says, here's what we're going to do. Get two bulls. This is verse 23 of 1 Kings 18. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose for themselves. You, prophets of Baal, choose for yourself which bull you want. We're going to cut it into pieces. We're going to put it on wood on top of the altar. But we're not going to set a fire on it. Now this was an ancient kind of ritual. This is what they would do. They'd offer sacrifices to God. How do you get the gods to do what you want? You have to appease them. 
You have a God that's supposed to send rain. He's not sending rain. What do you do? You give him something in order to try to get him to, to coax him to do what you want. You might burn grains. You might burn uh, birds. But one of the most valuable things you had was livestock. And so one of the greatest sacrifices you could offer God were animals. Now, I don't want to get too far into this, but this is one of the ugly things about these gods that, were, that was not the one true Yahweh, is that people would go so far as to sacrifice their children. If the bull, which was so valuable to us, didn't work, what do we have left? Take one of our kids. And God was totally, this is one of the reasons God's totally set against this whole intermingling and worshiping these false gods. It's not just that they were false, but what they would do and what they would, what the people would do in their name would, was just wicked. It's not to say there wasn't a place for the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, the way God set it up. But the way these false gods and how the people operated there was wicked. And so God, so God through Elijah draws this contest between the prophets Baal and God, Yahweh, as Israel called him. So they take this bull, they cut it up, they put it on the altar, and what they would normally do is they would light the altar. He says, we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to call on the name of our God... And we'll see which God sends fire. So the prophets of Baal call on the name of Baal. And no fire comes. They get so worked up that they're they're cutting themselves. To show how devoted and serious they are about getting Baal to send the fire. But it doesn't happen. Verse 27, Elijah begins to taunt the prophets of Baal. It's a pretty humorous scene if you picture it up on this mountain. All of 450 plus dancing around, shouting, cutting themselves, trying to get Baal to send fire. And Elijah says, shout louder. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awaked. Verse 28. So they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom until blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice came. But there was no response. Then Elijah says, all right, enough of all of that craziness. Come to me. He says, let's put, let's put this altar back together. With 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, they rebuilt the altar. Then he dug a trench around the altar. Again, the altar is a place on which they would burn the sacrifice. He dug a trench around it, enough to hold, it says, two says of seed, 24 pounds of seed. It's a pretty good trench around this altar. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into the pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he filled. And then he then he filled four jars with water and poured it on the offering, and on the wood. And then he says, "Do it again." So they filled up four jars again, poured the water on the offering, 
He said, do it again a third time. So they poured more water, four more jars of water, so that the water flowed down off the altar and actually filled up the trenches. And then in verse 36, we read, at the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah set forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that these people will know you, Lord, or God, that you are turning their hearts back to them. Then the fire came. The fire from the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. It burned up the wood. It even burned up the stones and the soil around it. And and it burned up all the water. All the people saw this and they fell prostrate. Now what did we just talk about? Worship. They worshipped the Lord God and they cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Now think about this in the life of Elijah. Elijah, a prophet of God, brings a message to King Ahab saying for three... Well, he doesn't say it at the beginning, but he just says, it's not going to rain. God's drying this place out. And think about how long he had to go, three years with no rain, knowing that the king, who could kill him, is angry and upset with him. And now the moment of victory comes. Literally a mountaintop experience with God happens. And surely you would think Elijah is vindicated. He can retire as a prophet. He can just set up shop wherever he wanted and just enjoy the rest of his days on earth. By the way, it's not just that the fire came, but right after that, just as Elijah said what happened, the rain came. But that's not what happened to Elijah. Something about that, something about the protection and a great future and everything working out. God has shown himself to be God over the Baals, God God over the Ashtoreths. God is in charge. Victory over here. And now the rain has come. We're going to have, we have the land growing and green again. So th- I mean, this is the peak of his life. And if I were him, I would just imagine now we get to enjoy this, right? I'm the prophet of the one true God. Everybody now knows that. God has sent rain because I asked him to send rain. And everybody knows that. So his expectations had to be something about comfort and ease. The protection of God. Things going well. Something like that first picture. Heading towards the finish line, it's just, it's all coasting from here. That's not what happens. We know that too. We have our expectations too. We have what we think is going to happen. We have our plans. And then we have reality. What was reality for Elijah? Well, chapter 19 of 1 Kings Ahab went home and told Jezebel about everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets. By the way, they killed the prophets of Baal. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, verse 2, to say, May the gods deal with me ever so bitterly if by this time tomorrow I do not make you like one of them. In other words, just as you killed my prophets, I will kill you. 
Now, in that moment, I would think Elijah would say, did you get the report about the fire? Did did you hear what happened with the rain? You're no threat to me. God stands behind me. That's what I would think would happen as you're reading the story. But here's the twist. That's not what happens. Elijah becomes fearful, extremely fearful for his life. Elijah was so afraid, he ran for his life, and he went to a place called Beersheba in Judah. We're going to just take a look at a picture that kind of tracks his progress. Okay, look at this picture here. At the very top, you see Mount Carmel. That's where the contest happened between the prophet of God, Elijah, and the prophets of Baal. From Mount Carmel, he went to the Valley of Jezreel. That's where he got the report... That Jezebel is going to try to have him killed. And it's that point that he flees from Jezreel down to Bathsheba. Now you see that little body of water at the top and the blue line that streaks down. The little body of water at the top is known as the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. That's where Jesus did a lot of his earthly ministry. The line that stretches down, that blue line, is the Jordan River. And the long kind of skinny body of water down below is the Dead Sea. So he leaves Mount Carmel, goes to Jezreel, hears about the threat to his life, and flees to Beersheba. That's where we're going to pick up in the story. While he was there, he leaves his servant behind. He travels a day into the wilderness of of, uh, Beersheba. He sets down under a bush, and he prays that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he replied. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. He laid there and he fell asleep. God sent an angel of the Lord to care for him. Bring him food. Bring him something to drink. He falls asleep again. God sends the angel again and gives him food and drink. And the word comes to him, get up, eat. The journey is too much for you. God says, I've got further for you to go. I've got another mountaintop experience for you. Put your sandals on. We're going to go all the way down to Mount Horeb, which in the Old Testament is also known as Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, that is a significant mountain in the Old Testament. That is where on the plains of that mountain, at the foothills of that mountain, rather, is where Moses saw the burning bush. He went up the mountain. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments. Right? Significant mountain in the life of God's people. And God says, you're going to take a journey. You've been on the mountaintop with me. You saw the victory. And now you've been in the valley, Jezreel. Have your life threatened. Now we're going back up another mountain. I've got some things to show you. I'm going to speak to you there. And we read the story. God does not come to him in ways that you would expect. It's not through the wind or through the earthquake or through the fire. It's through a still, small voice. God speaks to him. The instructions he gives Elijah. I've got new leadership you need to put in place. And I've got a companion for you and Elisha that's going to come and walk beside you as you train him to take over your role as the prophet over Israel. 
Elijah's not having it. What does he say? We read it. He says it twice. He says, look, I've been zealous for you. Look at all that I've, I've done for you. And now what? Elijah stands before God and says, look, I'm by myself here. All these prophets are gone. Jezebel killed them all. Now we know that's not true. But let's be honest. That's what happens when we're low. We make our problems big. When we're struggling, we often outsize the reality of our troubles. You could just say he lied. But in some way, Elijah felt or believed or convinced himself that he was all alone when, God, when he knew Obadiah, the prophet himself, said, no, I've, I've, I've saved a hundred of these prophets of God. You're not alone. And God tells him the same thing. You're not alone. And God sends him a partner to say, you're not alone. But he was in that tough place. It was hard to see what was true. I think we all find ourselves in those tough places where it's hard to see what is true. What he knew from the mountain caramel was that God is powerful and strong and able to handle anything. That's what he knew from that mountaintop experience. But when he came down in the valley, he forgot that message, y'all. God brought him up another mountain. And on that mountain, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, what does he tell him? He says, I'm taking care of you. That whole journey, God is saying, I'm taking care of you. See, there's going to be mountaintop experiences in our life. There's going to be moments where you feel the presence of God, the power of God in incredible ways. But you don't live on the mountain. You've got to come down off the mountain. We live in the valley. And what tends to happen, which is what happened to Elijah, is that what we learn of God in the mountaintop experience, we forget about God in the valley. But God is giving us a new perspective of himself on those mountains. That mountain for you may be the moment you were saved. You came to the Lord and you became a Christian and you never felt closer to God in your entire life. And it was amazing. It was incredible. And all you saw was the presence of God this near, this close, the rest of my life. And then you landed in the valley. Maybe it's, maybe you, you went to a conference. Maybe you went to summer camp. Maybe you experienced a revival setting. Maybe it's just in your own devotional life you experience the presence of God and it's wonderful and it's amazing. And as soon as you hit the valley, you forget all about that. What I think we can take from the story of Elijah is that there are two great truths that we should learn in our mountaintop experiences that can be easy to forget. And the first one is God is powerful. Look what he did to these prophets of Baal. But God also cares about you. That's the story of the travel from the valley to the wilderness to Mount Sinai. God providing for Elijah, giving him food, giving him drink, protecting him. Bringing him up to the mountain and whispering to him. Giving him the instructions he needed. We need to know that God is big and powerful, but he's also very active in our life. That he cares about you. That you matter to him. And when we are going through those valley experiences, 
Those are the two things that we have to hold on to, but we often forget. God can do something about this. God will do something about this. In His way, in His time, God is at work. Why? That's lesson number one. Why? Because the lesson number two is because He cares about me. I matter to Him. Just as Elijah was fed and taken care of and, and the voice of God whispered into his ear, we need these reminders Because life is not lived on the mountain, it's lived in the valley. And it's in the valley that we're tempted to forget the power of God and the presence of God. The power of God to eliminate the enemy. The presence of God to show that He cares for us. What Elijah did not do is exactly what Jesus did do. You see, Jesus also experienced incredible victories. He experienced victory over demons. He experienced victory over death. He, he was able to bring back from the dead people who had died. He was able to do amazing miracles, feeding the 4,000. He did it again, feeding the 5,000. After he preached, people would say, that's the most impressive preaching we've ever heard from anyone ever. And yet Jesus also knows what it's like to be betrayed by someone close to him. Jesus knows what it's like to be abandoned by his friends. Jesus knows what it's like to come to serve the world only to have the world turn its back on him. He knows the highs and he knows the lows better than Elijah. And when he shows up to pray to God, he does not say to God, If it's not my will, I want to die. That's not what Jesus says. Elijah says, if it's not my will, I want to die. Jesus doesn't say, if it's not my will, I want to die. He says, not my will, but thine. That's what he says. Now, how does Jesus have the ability to say that? Because Jesus knew something. That Elijah somehow had lost sight of. That the Father in heaven is powerful and he cares for us. Not only that, but Jesus knew the plan God had. Jesus knew what God was going to do. In the midst of the turmoil of thinking about the loss of his life and the disconnection from his father he would experience when he took on the sins of the world, he was still able to say, not what I want, God, but what you want. It's one of the most mysterious and powerful passages in the whole Bible. If he asked me to explain all of that, I really couldn't. But the lesson's there. Jesus knew that God was up to something. And see, this, this is the thing that helps us. And this is the last thing I'll share, but this is the thing that helps us. And see, God not only brings you to the mountain to know His power and His glory. He not only brings you to the mountain so that you'll know that He cares for you. Not just people in general, but you specifically. He not only takes you up in the mountains, He brings you down in the valley so that you can take what you learn and put it into practice and grow. At summer camp, one of our pastors explained that. That if you look at any mountain, you'll see that on the tip top there's nothing growing. It's not until you hit the tree line that you start to see trees and vegetation starting to grow. Nothing grows on the mountain. You get a great sight. You get clarity. You can see things you didn't see before. But you've got to come off the mountain to take those things you learn and to grow. Now here's what Jesus knew. He knew that wasn't for him alone. 
He knew in the plan and the mystery of God that he was fulfilling something that the Old Testament had talked about. That there would be one who would come, take on the sins of the world, die for sinners like you and me, to begin a kingdom that would never end. He knew that what he was going through was not just about him, but it was about those around him. Let me tell you something. When you get that perspective, the mountaintops become even greater and the valleys become even more important because you know what God is teaching you and then helping grow in you in the valleys is not just for you. Parents is for your kids. Employers is for your employees. Neighbors is for your neighbor. Brother, sister, it's for your sibling. God is going to take you to the mountain and through the valley, not just so that you will learn and put into practice what you learn, but that God might use that thing that he is teaching you to bless someone else. Let me tell you something. If anyone has ever taught you anything valuable, important that you've hung on to for your whole life, I promise you they did not learn that easy. I can almost guarantee you God taught them that through mountains and valleys. And what if God is doing that in your life that he may use you to bless others? Because what do we see in the life of Jesus? From the mountaintops of miracles, incredible preaching, casting out demons, bringing people back to life, to the valley of crucifixion and rejection. Back up the mountaintop to resurrection and ascension. Was that just for him? Let's pray. Father God, I know that it's easy to share these things, but many of us here today, we, we've been through unspeakable valleys. And it has been so hard to hold on to the truth that you are great, God, powerful and mighty, and yet you care for us and have a plan for our lives. Some have gone through those mountains and valleys and mountains and valleys and now they know that. And God, I pray that you would use them to bless the people in their lives. But some are in the midst of that valley and it's hard to feel that that's true. God, would you just confirm in their heart it is true. That you are there. You are that mighty God. You do care. And that what you're teaching them in that valley is invaluable for the life that you've called them to live and the people you've called them to bless. And God, let us all look to Jesus. He knew what he would go through. He knew the highs and lows he would experience. And yet he came for us because in his resurrection, he shows his power. In his crucifixion, he shows his care. And that same Jesus That we stand in awe of, Father, we know His Spirit dwells in us. So help us to learn to see clearly on the mountain who you are. Help us to put into action that what we've learned in the valleys of life. And help us to be that blessing to those around us that you've called us to impact. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today, if you have heard from God, I encourage you to respond to the Lord. Respond in prayer. If you want to come forward and pray at the altar, if you'd like for me to pray for you, I'd be glad to. But if God has spoken to you, and I hope he has...
If God has spoken to you, don't leave this place today without speaking to Him. Let's stand together for our invitation.